Let us give our attention to God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at Job chapter 36, verses 1 through 23. So not the entire chapter, just the first 23 verses. This is part of our ongoing series through the book of Job called God and Suffering. So Job 36, 1 through 23, that's on page 441 of the Pew Bibles. Let's go, Lord, and pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask in faith that you would give us the ability to understand what is written. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask for your blessing to accompany the reading and proclamation of your word. Give us eyes to see the true meaning of this passage and how to best apply it to our life. I pray these things in faith, in your Son's name, amen. There was a 16-year-old who had just gotten his driver's license, and he had been planning for this day for a long time. He had been saving every dollar he had ever earned so he could buy a car. And so very quickly, after he got his license, he went ahead and bought his first car. It was an old car, and it was a rusty car, but it was his car. And so he would spend all his extra time out in the garage or in the driveway uh, looking at it, walking around it, getting in, opening the hood, poking around. He didn't know a whole lot about cars, but he wanted to learn. And then after a few weeks of of driving it around, he noticed when he would come to a stop sign, he would come to a a red light, it it would almost die. The engine would almost quit. And then one day it did quit. And he told his dad, and his dad said, yeah, I I told you, this is part of owning your own car. You're going to have repair costs. Let's take it down to the garage and see what they say. So they took it down to the local private garage, and it was a a single guy, a mechanic, working there. And they came in, and they told him what was wrong, and he said, do you have the keys? And they said, yeah, they handed over the keys. And then as he was going into the garage, the the boy said, oh, and and just when you're pulling into the garage, I noticed the opening is kind of narrow. Just watch the mirrors on the outside as you're pulling it in. The mechanic just kind of paused and didn't say anything, and then he walked into the garage. And his his dad, uh, they, they both walked outside. It was a nice day, and the mechanic came out to get the car, and he pulled it into the garage without hitting the mirrors. And then he went around to the front of the hood to unlatch the hood, and and the boy crept a little closer, and he said, oh yeah, when you open this, you're going to want to not only push down on the latch, but you're going to need to pull it a little bit, and before he could finish his sentence, the hood was open, and the mechanic said, I got it. And then the mechanic started, you know, poking around under the hood, and and this time he stepped over the threshold into the garage, and the boy said, yeah, you're going to want to disconnect the negative battery cable. I I just know that's one of the first things you need to do. And the mechanic turned around and said, don't make me shut the door. And the boy said, what? He said, don't don't make me shut the door. Don't, Don't interrupt me like this. This isn't the first car I've worked on, okay? Just give me some space. If you keep bothering me, I'm going to shut the door. You can just take your car somewhere else. And the, the father could see what was going on. He said, son, why don't you just come up back here? He said, let him do his job. This isn't the first car he's worked on, right? Yeah. Okay, let him do his job. He knows what he's doing. In chapter 36, Elihu is telling Job, let God do his job. God knows what he's doing. 
This isn't the first time that God has brought affliction into the life of one of his people. Instead, Job should trust God, let him do his job. Now, when we say let God do his job, we understand, I hope we all understand, God doesn't need our permission to do anything, right? He's not waiting on us to, to allow him to do something. So that's not what we mean. When we talk about letting God do his job, I mean in the sense of our response, our response to what God is doing in our life. And that will become more clear as we make our way through the passage. When we seek to apply this, there's going to be an application for unbelievers, there's going to be an application for believers, but it, it really comes down to how we react or how we respond to what God is doing in our life. How we respond. Will we let God do his job? And if so, how do we do that? How do we let God do his job? That's what we're going to answer by the time we're done. So let's look at the first 23 verses. This is Job 36. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little and I will show you, for I have something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days of prosperity and their years of pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger, they do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping, and was what was set on your table was, was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatest of the ransom, greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? So this is Elihu, the prophet, speaking. We've been looking at him for a couple of weeks now. And before he speaks this next message to Job, he's going to identify the source of his message. And that source is God. For I have something to say on God's behalf. So Elihu's message to Job is not his message. They aren't his words. They're words from God. He's acting in the role of a prophet, bringing the words of God to one of God's people. I will get my knowledge from afar, from God, and ascribe righteousness to my maker. So a life whose ultimate goal is to be faithful, to communicate the words of God to Job, and to honor his God or his maker. 
For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Now the reason Elihu can say that is not because his words are perfect. That would be very arrogant for someone who was not acting in the role of a prophet to say, my words are perfect. No, the reason he can say that is because he's acting in the role of a prophet and God's words are always true and perfect. And to help put this chapter, that that was kind of the preamble. He identifies where his message is coming from, but then the rest of it is going to be the main body of the message. And in order to help us kind of make sense of this, where this falls in the Elihu speeches, we've got our mini outline here. Number one, or Roman number one, God is greater than man. That's the big banner headline. That's the front page headline uh, that titles what Elihu is, is bringing to Job. And then each chapter we've seen a successive subpoint that he's used to, used to build up and support that main point. So God is not silent, God is not unjust. Last week, God is not like us in chapter 35, and this week, God is not purposeless. God is not purposeless when he brings affliction. So that's the, the, the focus of this chapter. So now back to Elihu the prophet, verse 5. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. We are not forced to choose between an almighty God who carries out his, his will or a God that cares about people. It's a both and, not an either or. God is mighty and he cares for people. He is mighty in strength of understanding. God carries out his divine will, including bringing affliction on people with total understanding. Remember, we earlier in Job talked about God's blueprint wisdom. Since God is the, the architect, the engineer, the creator of, of the universe and everything in it, he has access to that blueprint knowledge. He has access to knowledge that we don't have. We are not God. But God is God. And so everything he does, he does perfectly. A general correction is brought in verse 6. He does not keep the wicked alive. Remember, a lot of what Elihu is saying to Job is in response to what Job has already said. And Job had been saying things like, uh, God, God's treating everyone the same. It looks like the wicked and, and, and the righteous. It doesn't matter. In the end, God's treating everyone the same. So Elihu says, no. No. God can be trusted to bring judgment on those who act wickedly, but gives the afflicted their right. Back in Job 34, Job claimed, God has denied me my right. And what he meant was, God has denied me justice. I I have my my day in court that I've been longing for, that it's not there. God has mishandled my case somehow, and I'm I'm on the receiving end of some injustice. Elijah says, no, no, that's not true. God does give the afflicted their right. All people, great and small, receive perfect justice from God. And now we get to verse 7 through 12. God has a purpose. This is the main body uh, of, of the message. God is not purposeless. So here it is, 7 through 12. And this is Elihu's response to Job. Remember, Job had been claiming that God had remained distant from him, that he was, he was withholding his eyes from Job and his suffering. So verses 7 through 12 are like Elihu saying, no, 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 that's not true. And here's how this works. I'm going to show you how God has a purpose when he brings suffering and affliction into someone's life. So a general walkthrough. Here's how this works. God is attentive to the righteous. He does not withdraw his eyes from them. He blesses those 
that walk in his ways like kings on the throne. He sets them forever and they're exalted. So first he says, yes, God knows how to bless people. Some, some great, some small, but yes, God, God is able when he uh, chooses to bless the righteous. But when a person finds themselves caught in the cords of affliction, in other words, when a person is suffering, that is when God declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. So God uses these circumstances, affliction, suffering, to humble people and to point out some sin in their life, to rebuke them, to teach them. All this is part of his loving care for them. This suffering, this this affliction, there's a purpose to it. Verse 10, he opens their ears to instruction and commands that they refrain from iniquity in the midst of the affliction. Opens their ears. God uses suffering, calamity, loss, crisis, sickness to teach us something that we would otherwise be unwilling to hear. God gets our attention through suffering. He opens our ears so we're hearing him. Once he has our attention, it says he commands that we refrain, or excuse me, return from iniquity. We, we as, as people have a sinful nature that does not want to be taught by God. We, we don't want to hear that we're living wrongly before him, or that we're believing the wrong things about God, or about ourselves, or about the world. We don't want to hear that, naturally. But God loves us so much that he uses these types of things to get our attention and correct us and teach us. And then at this point, Elihu says we have a choice. When God gets our attention, it can end in one of two ways. We can either listen or not listen. That's pretty simple, right? Listen or not listen. This is a fork in the road moment. Verse 11, if they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. Verse 12, but if they do not listen, that's the other fork in the road, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. And then 13 and 14 are verses that provide an additional description of what happens, uh, how it turns out for those who do not listen to God. They cherish anger when God binds them. Their end is a shameful end. In other words, they, they die without faith, without repentance. Their life ends, it says, among the cult prostitutes, meaning they die in a state that's no better than those who practice false worship, and participate in pagan worship practices. So he's saying when God brings the heat of corrective suffering, the godless recoil in anger and resentment, instead of allowing the experience to shape them and form them, they they dig in their heels, they, they, they double down, they harden their hearts, they stiffen their necks, and they reject God's gracious intervention designed to, to heal them and get their attention and lead them to repentance. Verse 15, back to those who listen, he said, it says, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears by adversity. We are never more attentive, we are never more attentive to what God has to say to us than when we are hurting or suffering or afraid God has our attention in those moments. And God uses those things to open our ears and ultimately to deliver us if we respond in faith. So when the refining fire is, is done, when it's done its work, he, and he's, he's hammered us and shaped us on the, the anvil of his purposes, only then are we lowered into the cool water 
of deliverance and restoration. Then we're ready to move on and serve him and live for him in ways that were not possible beforehand. So verse 16, that's what God's doing for you, Job. He will bring you out of distress into a broad place as opposed to being hedged in or confined or cramped. And once again, you will enjoy good things and prosperity. That, that phrase fatness, uh, the, the table of fatness, the t- your table was full of fatness, uh, that's a description of good things. Uh, fatness was, was a sign of prosperity, the, eating the fat, uh, those were good things. But right now, verse 17, but right now you're under the hand of God experiencing suffering. You're being taught. You're being disciplined. It's going to look and feel a lot like God's judgment on the wicked for you right now, Job. And then verse 18, beware. Don't give in to temptation as you continue to to experience affliction. I know you're hurting, Elihu says, but don't lash out at God. Specifically, don't continue to lash out at God accusing him of injustice. That's why you're here to begin with. Let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. I know it looks like the price you have to pay for this, for this work that God is doing in you is expensive. It looks like it's too much to bear. But hang in there. Don't give up. Verse 19, Job, you can't save yourself. You can't deliver yourself by the force of your own strength. You can't cry out loud enough to save yourself. And then a couple of improper responses. Verse 20, don't tap out. Don't long for death, which Job has done repeatedly. Remember back in earlier chapters, Job said things like, oh, I I long for for the end, or uh, if my my day of birth, I wish it had never happened. In other words, he was completely ready to just be taken out of the picture. Elihu says, no, that's not the answer. Verse 21, don't turn to sin. Don't give up and say it doesn't matter anymore, so I might as well plunge headlong into sin, specifically misrepresenting God or accusing him of injustice. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. So he's saying, so far, Job, you seem to prefer crying out to God um, instead of enduring the affliction. And then the last two verses, 22 and 23, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? God is all-powerful. He will deliver you but not before he teaches you the error of prideful words and not before he leads you to repentance. Who has prescribed for him his way or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember, Elihu's main accusation is, Job, you've crossed a line here. You've presumed to be the teacher and you've made God out to be the one who needs correction. You've presumed to be in the right and are accusing God of somehow mishandling your case. And that's not the way it works. If we were to summarize this first part of chapter 36, let God do his job, we could say this, Elihu, delivering the words of God as a prophet of God, tells Job that God has a purpose bringing suffering and calamity upon people. The purpose is to get our attention, to rebuke us, to expose sin and lead us to repentance. And when experiencing God's purposeful suffering in our lives, we have a choice. We can either live and serve him, or we can not listen and go our own way. When we find ourselves in the midst of affliction, it will be difficult to endure. We will be tempted 
to turn aside and seek sinful release or escape. Instead, we are to trust God and let him do his job. That would be a summary of this chapter. So we've got an application here. Remember I said we've got an application for unbelievers, an application for believers. And that makes sense because God views all people with a, with a very firm dividing line spiritually between those who are his and those who are not his. So we would expect something uh, a little different to be aimed at believers versus unbelievers. So first let me talk to unbelievers regarding salvation. There was a uh, pet owner who had a cat and they had to be sure to fill up the food bowl at night because if the cat ran out of food it would come and annoy the owner during the night. And the cat would would hop up on the bed and and climb up and the first thing it would do would just be kind of walk around on top of the owner to get his attention. But that usually didn't do the job so he'd just kind of roll over and make a noise. Then the cat would come and, and start to butt the owner with its head. It would, it would kind of do one of these, and the owner, again, would just kind of say, yeah, go away, roll over. And then finally, if that didn't work, the cat would find any kind of exposed area, and then it would bite down hard. And the owner would immediately wake up, scream, say, ow, all right, all right, and they'd shuffle down to the kitchen, and they'd pour some food in the bowl. When God uses suffering, affliction, crisis, conflict, sickness, injury, loss, or difficulties, he's doing that to give us a hard bite, to get our attention. Because God knows that as when we're in unbelief, when we're wrapped in the, let's call them the bedsheets of, of unbelief, we're very comfortable. And, and we often don't respond to gentle nudges. Sometimes it takes a hard bite. And so the message for anybody who's not in Christ this morning would be this. Don't ignore the hard bite from God. Respond. Repent and believe. He's doing that because he loves you. If you continually ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit, they will eventually go away. Unbelief breeds unbelief. Unbelief gives birth to more unbelief. Repent and believe. We cannot save ourselves. As an unbeliever, if you stand, if you're if you're going into eternity, the moment you die, when you stand before God, God is going to see all of your sin in vivid 4K high definition color, and it's going to be right there for everybody to see. And that is the only thing you're going to be able to present to God. And he will not accept you. However, if you turn and repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you stand before God, you will be clothed, Scripture says, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he will not see your sin. He will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you will be accepted by him. So for unbelievers, if you're feeling a bite, respond with repentance and belief. Now believers, we're going to have three points of application. Number one, If you're going through some sort of suffering, crisis, loss, sickness, the first thing I want you to know is that God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. He's not winging it. Okay? Sometimes we we say, well, I don't know really what's going on. I've never done this before. How hard can it be? I'm just going to wing it. God is not winging it. 
This is not the first car he's worked on. This is not the first person that he's brought suffering and affliction into their life. So know that. Know that he uses suffering to shape and complete some work in people. He is not winging it. You're in good hands. You are safe for believers that are going through affliction. That's number one. You're safe. Number two, we can distinguish between light affliction and deep affliction. And we should distinguish between it. First, light affliction. It's possible to have very small experiences of suffering, crisis, loss, sickness in our life that don't necessarily mean that God is trying to complete some major overhaul or, or, or do some major transformative work in our life. So, for example, if you cut your finger slicing carrots in the kitchen, God may not be doing some great work in your life. The, the takeaway there, the lesson to learn may be, I need to be more careful when slicing vegetables with a sharp knife. Maybe that's it. Okay. It doesn't always mean that there's something going on. Yeah, ouch, I'm bleeding, but maybe he's not completing some great work. So if we lose our wallet, we lose our purse, we lose our phone, or we sprain an ankle or something like that, these are minor, these are light affliction. And he may or may not be trying to teach us something. However, when you experience deep suffering, deep affliction, crisis, loss, sickness, God is almost, and we want to put the almost on there, but almost always doing something in your life. He's trying to teach you something. He's trying to bring you to a different point in your sanctification. Do not ignore it. Deep affliction. He could be draining the pride out of us, for example. He could be draining the pride out of us. When he places us in a position of weakness or dependency, that is a way of tearing our thoughts off of our hopes and our dreams and our plans because we think we can make them happen. It just kind of tears it off, those types of thoughts. Deep affliction drains our pride, forces us to acknowledge that we are not all that. We're not in control. We're not the architects of our own life. We're not the masters of our own destiny. It causes us to look in the rear in the rear view mirror of our life and realize the only reason we are here today is because of the grace of God and because He has allowed us to be here. It's not because we've worked hard to get here or we're smart enough to get here or that we've built our, our little kingdom to get here or, or any of those things. It's not about us. It's by the grace of God. So God uses deep affliction to drain our pride. God also uses deep affliction on believers to open our ears so we're able to hear him as he commands us to turn from our sin. God uses deep affliction in the life of believers so we can hear him as he commands us to turn from our sin. Now usually, God, God doesn't go 0 to 60 in one second. God doesn't go from the, the first time we, we commit some sin or disobedient to deep affliction to, to, to knock us down and teach us this. No, 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 no. We, we usually have been doing this for a while and God has been speaking to us for a while. He's been saying, repent, turn away, this isn't right. Stop it. And all along we've been kind of ignoring him. And even though we know it's not right, we, we've been confronted by God, the Holy Spirit, we've been confronted by God's Word, we're, we're, we're not happy with the inconsistency of our life between the sin that we're committing and our, and our uh, 
professing belief in Jesus Christ, we understand that there's inconsistency, yet we persist in sin. If that goes on long enough, God will send deep affliction. And when we're feeling it, when we're under the deep affliction, he says, can you hear me now? Do I have your attention now? Repent. Turn back to me. God uses deep affliction to teach us all kinds of things. Now these, these things are going to be unique to us. They're going to be custom designed for our particular sanctification. Custom designed for our unique circumstances. He could be teaching us dependency upon him, to rely on him and not our own strength. He could be teaching us to let go of our possessions. There's something about deep affliction that, that brings into crystal clarity what's important and what's not important in this world. He could be teaching us to change, change the directions of our lives. Instead of working and, and living towards X, maybe he wants us to work and live towards Y and Z and, and, and live for that instead of, instead of X. So that's number two. Number one is be safe. Number two is that when God brings deep affliction, we distinguish between light and deep, but when he brings deep affliction, it's almost always to perform some major work in our life, either drain us from pride, uh, call us to repent from sin, or to teach us something that's uniquely designed for us. Then number three, when God sends deep affliction in our life, there's nothing more important than responding correctly. In other words, letting God do his job. Remember I said at the beginning, this is what we're going to answer. How do we let God do, do his job? How do we respond correctly when God brings deep affliction in our life? Well, first we take note of what to avoid. Verse 18, do not lash out at God. God knows what he's doing. There's nothing wrong with God. God, God knows what he's doing. Uh, accusing God or approaching God in a, with a demanding tone or, or, or saying something's not fair or, or lashing out in anger, that's not going to help. Number two, do not try to muscle your way through the deep affliction under your own strength. Verse 19, repeatedly telling yourself, I can handle this. I can get through this. We're strong. We can get through this. I'll be fine. I always pull through. Seeking relief without seeking God. Seeking relief without seeking God. Trying to escape the deep affliction in ways that an unbeliever would seek escape from deep affliction. I'm going to depend on me. I'm going to depend on what I can do to get through this. No, don't try to muscle your way through in your own strength. Don't try, don't long for the night. Do not long for the night. And somebody might say, well, um, that's certainly not going to be a problem with me. I've put up this steel curtain and I'm never going to go there. I'm never even going to entertain thoughts of suicide. Okay, I, my next question would be, how much experience do you have with deep affliction? Because even people that have put up a steel curtain that said, that's, that's not even an option for me, when they go through something this deep, it causes them to entertain thoughts that they never thought were possible. And scripture says that's not the way. Taking our own life is never the answer. God numbers our days, not us. Verse 21, do not turn to iniquity. When deep afflictions becomes too much, there is often a strong temptation to plunge into sin. 
when we're going through something, when it's stressing us out, when, when nothing seems to matter anymore, and it seems like there's no way out, sometimes people will give in to the enticement to escape through sinful means, to dull the pain, to medicate until numb, to seek pleasure at any cost. The logic goes something like this. Well, if I'm going to be miserable without hope, I might as well feel good while I'm miserable without hope. And so they turn to sin. That's not the answer either. None of those things are the answer. They're all examples of what not to do, given to us in Scripture when we go through deep affliction. So here's how to respond. Here's how to let God do His job. Please listen. When, when we engage of any of those things, entertaining suicide, plunging into sin, lashing out at God, trying to muscle through on our own strength, and any of those things just mentioned, when we, when we do those things, all of those things are going to interfere with what God is accomplishing in us through the deep affliction. Think, think of sanctification. Think of point A and point B. God, God is using this deep affliction to get us from point A to point B. It only is through this deep affliction, whatever that is. When we get starting off, we, we enter into this deep affliction, things get hot, and we realize it's very difficult. If we turn to any of these other things, that, that's like derailing it. It's like we're going off the edge of a cliff and, and we tumble down. And we never are going to make point B. Do you see what I'm saying? If God brings deep, deep affliction on us to teach us something or to call us back from sin and we take that fork in the road and we don't listen and we, we, we go the opposite way, that process is going to not accomplish what it is intended to accomplish. We're not going to emerge on the other side on point B. We're not going to have progressed in our faith. We're not going to make that sanctification jump because we didn't let God do His job. We didn't respond with faith and obedience. We didn't listen. God doesn't need our advice. He doesn't need our interruptions. And in the midst of deep affliction, if we turn to any of those things, it's like him saying, don't make me shut the door. I'll stop this deep affliction. I'll I'll take it away, but then the work's never going to get done. You need to go through this to get where I want you to be. So the proper response is found in verse 11. Listen and serve him. Listen and serve him. Listen. Listen means pray to God and ask Him to reveal what He wants to accomplish in you through this deep affliction. Ask God in prayer what He's trying to accomplish in you through this deep affliction. Turn to Him and say, you have my attention. I want to learn. I want to be obedient. Show me what needs to change in my life. Show me my sin. Correct me. Teach me. God will answer that prayer if we don't already know. Oftentimes we we know why we're going through the deep affliction. But if we don't, pray that prayer. He will answer it. So listen. Then serve him. Take action steps to eliminate the sin from your life that he's put his finger on. 
engage in a new way of life that is congruent with what he's showing you and teaching you through the experience of deep affliction. It's the ability to respond correctly to deep affliction that allows us to progress in our faith. It's what allows us to reach point B in our, in our sanctification. When we come to that fork in the road, we have to decide how we're going to respond. Listening and serving is the path that will result in the completion of the good work that God intended. And finally, this is critical, never go back. Never go back. Can you imagine if Job, now Job's going to be restored in 42. He's going to be healed. He's going to have children again. He's going to have all his wealth restored. And even then some, he's he's going to have total restoration. What would it look like if after Job was restored, maybe a year or two later, Job started saying things like, I don't know if God is really just. I don't know if he's really fair. I think maybe he's mishandled my case again. How tragic that would be. And likewise, it would be tragic if if any of us would would go through some deep affliction and then a year or two after the the affliction has passed and we're on the restoration side, we start to go back to point A. Return to that besetting sin that takes up residence in our heart again. Or we forget what he's taught us. That would be tragic. When we find ourselves experiencing deep affliction, let God do his job. And that means we respond by listening and serving and we never go back. I want to close with 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9. This is the Apostle Paul. Listen carefully. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Affliction. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, scholars are divided. We're not sure exactly what he's talking about. It could have been something that happened in Ephesus. We we just don't know. But whatever it was, that looks like deep affliction to me. The spirit of life. That that sounds like suicidal thoughts. That that sounds like, I'm, I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to tap out. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Yes, it sounded like Paul went through deep affliction, but it also sounded that he responded by listening and serving. It sounded like he learned the lesson. It sounded like God was trying to teach him something, and he was trying to teach him to rely on God and not on his own strength. And it sounds like Paul learned that lesson, and he went out and served faithfully. Amen. Heavenly Father, uh, deep affliction is not pleasant. It is not enjoyable. It is not something that any one of us want to go through. But in the end, our prayers mirror the prayers of Jesus. Not our will be done, but your will. Father, we ask that when deep affliction comes to our life, that we listen that we respond. Father, help us to trust you and to let you do your job. Help us to endure patiently the deep affliction that you bring upon us, knowing that the day of restoration is coming. You know what you're doing. You will bring us through. 
we want to emerge on the other side having progressed in our faith having learned our lessons and made more Christ-like. In Jesus' name, amen.